Chapter Five, Section Four, of the Promise of American Life by Herbert Crawley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. Chapter Five, Section Four, The Labor Union and the Democratic Tradition. The other decisive instance of this specialized organization of American activity remains to be considered, that of the labor unions. The power which the unions have obtained in certain industrial centers, and the tightness of their organization, would have seemed anomalous to the good Jacksonian Democrat. From his point of view, the whole American democracy was a kind of labor union whose political constitution provided for a substantially equal division of the products of labor, and if the United States had remained as much of an agricultural community as it was in 1830, the Jacksonian system would have preserved a much higher degree of serviceability. Except in the case of certain local granger and populist movements, the American farmers have never felt the necessity of organization to advance either their economic or their political interests. But when the mechanic or the day laborer gathered into the cities, he soon discovered that life in a democratic state by no means deprived him of special class interests. No doubt, he was at worst paid better than his European analogues, because the demand for labor in a new country was continually outrunning the supply, but on occasions he was, like his employer, threatened with merciless competition. The large and continuous stream of foreign immigrants, whose standards of living were, in the beginning, lower than those which prevailed in this country, were, particularly in hard times, a constant menace not merely to his advancement, but to the stability of his economic situation and he began to organize partly for the purpose of protecting himself against such competition. During the last thirty years the work of organization has made enormous strides, and it has been much accelerated by the increasing industrial power of huge corporations. The mechanic and the laborer have come to believe that they must meet organization with organization, and discipline with discipline. Their object in forming trade associations has been militant. Their purpose has been to conquer a larger share of the economic product by aggressive associated action. They have been very successful in accomplishing their object. In spite of the flood of alien immigration, the American laborer has been able to earn an almost constantly increasing wage, and he devoutly thinks that his unions have been the chief agency of his stronger economic position. He believes in unionism, consequently, as he believes in nothing else. He is, indeed, far more aggressively preoccupied with his class, as contrasted with his individual interests, than are his employers. He has no respect for the traditional American individualism, as applied to his own social and economic standing. Whenever he has had the power, he has suppressed competition as ruthlessly as have his employers. Every kind of contumelious reproach is heaped on the heads of the working men, who dare to replace him when he strikes and he does not scruple to use, under such conditions, weapons more convincing than the most opprobrious epithets. His own personality is merged in that of the Union. No individual has any rights as opposed to the interests of the Union. He fully believes, of course, in competition among employers, just as the employers are extremely enthusiastic over the individual liberty of the working man. But in his own trade, he has no use for individuality of any kind. The union is to be composed of so many equal units, who will work the same number of hours for the same wages, 
and no one of whom is to receive more pay even for more work. The unionist, that is, has come to depend upon his union for that material prosperity and advancement which, according to the American tradition, was to be the inevitable result of American political ideas and institutions. His attachment to his union has come to be the most important attachment of his life, more important in most cases than his attachment to the American ideal and to the national interest. Some of the labor unions, like some of the corporations, have taken advantage of the infirmities of local and state governments to become arrogant and lawless. On the occasion of a great strike, the strikers are often just as disorderly as they are permitted to be by the local police. When the police prevent them from resisting the employment of strikebreakers by force, they apparently believe that the political system of the country has been pressed into the service of their enemies, and they begin to wonder whether it will not be necessary for them to control such an inimical political organization. The average union laborer, even though he might hesitate himself to assault a scab, warmly sympathizes with such assaults, and believes that in the existing state of industrial warfare they are morally justifiable. In these and in other respects, he places his allegiance to his union and to his class, above his allegiance to his state and to his country. He becomes in the interests of the organization a bad citizen, and at times an inhuman animal, who is ready to maim or even to kill another man, and for the supposed benefit of himself and his fellows. The most serious danger to the American democratic future which may issue from aggressive and unscrupulous unionism consists in the state of mind of which mob violence is the only expression. The militant unionists are beginning to talk and believe, as if they were at war with the existing social and political order, as if the American political system was as inimical to their interests as would be that of any European monarchy or aristocracy. The idea is being systematically propagated that the American government is one which favors the millionaire rather than the wage earner, and the facts which either superficially or really support this view are sufficiently numerous to win for it an apparently increasing number of adherents. The union laborer is tending to become suspicious, not merely of his employer, but of the constitution of American society. His morals are becoming those of men engaged in a struggle for life. The manifestations of this state of mind in notion are not very numerous, although on many occasions they have worn a sufficiently sinister aspect. But they are numerous enough to demand serious attention, for the literature popular among the unionists is a literature not merely of discontent, but sometimes of revolt. Whether this aggressive unionism will ever become popular enough to endanger the foundations of the American political and social order, I shall not pretend to predict. The practical dangers resulting from it at any one time are largely neutralized by the mere size of the country and its extremely complicated social and industrial economy. The menace it contains to the nation as a whole can hardly become very critical as long as so large a proportion of the American voters are landowning farmers. But while the general national well-being seems sufficiently protected, for the present, against the aggressive assertion of the class interests of the unionists, the legal public interest of particular states and cities cannot be considered as anywhere near so secure, and in any event the existence of aggressive discontent on that part of the unionists must constitute a serious problem for the American legislator and statesman. Is there any ground for such aggressive discontent? 
how has it come to pass that the american political system which was designed to guarantee the welfare and prosperity of the people is the subject of such violent popular suspicion can these suspicions be allayed merely by curbing the somewhat excessive opportunities of the rich man and by the diminution of his influence upon the government or does the discontent indicate the existence of more radical economic evils or the necessity of more radical economic reforms however the foregoing questions ought to be answered there can be no doubt as to the nature of the answers proposed by the unionists themselves the unionist leaders frequently offer verbal homage to the great american principle of equal rights but what they really demand is the abandonment of that principle what they want is an economic and political order which will discriminate in favor of union labor and against non-union labor and they want it on the ground that the unions have proved to be the most effective agency on behalf of economic and social amelioration of the wage earner the unions that is are helping most effectively to accomplish the task traditionally attributed to the american democratic political system the task of raising the general standard of living and the unionists claim that they deserve on this ground recognition by the state and active encouragement obviously however such encouragement could not go very far without violating both the federal and many state constitutions the result being that there is a profound antagonism between our existing political system and what the unionists consider to be a perfectly fair demand like all good americans while verbally asking for nothing but equal rights they interpret the phrase so that equal rights becomes equivalent to special rights of all the hard blows which the course of american political and economic development has dealt to the traditional system of political ideas and institutions perhaps the hardest is this demand for discrimination on behalf of union labor it means that the more intelligent and progressive american workingmen are coming to believe that the american political and economic organization does not sufficiently secure the material improvement of the wage earner this conviction may be to a large extent erroneous certain it is that the wages of unorganized farm laborers have been increasing as rapidly during the past thirty years as have the wages of the organized mechanics but whether erroneous or not it is widespread and deep-rooted and whatever danger it possesses is derived from the fact that it affords to a substantially revolutionary purpose a large and increasing popular following the other instances of organization for special purposes which have been remarked have superficially at least been making for conservatism the millionaire and the professional politician want above all things to be let alone and to be allowed to enjoy the benefit of their conquests but the labor organizations cannot exercise the power necessary in their opinion to their interests without certain radical changes in the political and economic order and inasmuch as their power is likely to increase rather than diminish the american people are confronted with the prospect of persistent unscrupulous and increasing agitation on behalf of an economic and political reorganization in favor of one class of citizens the large corporations and the unions occupy in certain respects a similar relation to the american political system their advocates both believe in associated action for themselves and in competition for their adversaries they both demand governmental protection and recognition but resent the notion of efficient governmental regulation they have both reached their existing power partly because of the weakness of the state governments to which they are legally subject 
and they both are opposed to any interference by the federal government, except exclusively on their own behalf. Yet they both have become so very powerful that they are frequently too strong for the state governments, and in different ways, they both traffic for their own benefit with the politicians, who so often control those governments. Here, of course, the parallelism ends and the divergence begins. The corporations have apparently the best of the situation, because existing institutions are more favorable to the interests of the corporations than to the interests of the unionists, but on the other hand, the unions have the immense advantage of a great and increasing numerical strength. They are beginning to use the suffrage to promote a class interest, though how far they will travel on this perilous path remains doubtful. In any event, it is obvious that the development in this country, of two such powerful and unscrupulous and well-organized special interests, has created a condition which the founders of the Republic never anticipated, and which demands as a counterpoise a more effective body of national opinion, and a more powerful organization of the national interest. End of chapter 5, section 4